scripture reading is from the book of Ruth, chapter 2, 4 through 23. So it's a little lengthy, so bear with me. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back, from, came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, put out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she took her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Blessed he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Well, good morning again. Am I on? Okay. Um, if you're in person or on YouTube, we're really glad that you're here uh, and joining us in worship. Uh, if you are on YouTube, it's our hope that you can join us as soon as you can in person. Uh, in the meantime, if you're new, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at northcrosschurch.com or sit at northcrosschurch.com. That's my email. If you're new to uh, North Cross and you're here in person, uh, we're really glad that you're all here. And we do hope you feel welcome. And there is a table out there. Um, if you'd like to hear more from or about North Cross, you can sign up for on the table there. There should be a sign-up sheet. And also there are some free coffee mugs and, and things, information about North Cross. You can grab that as well. Um, and finally, if you are just looking to get more involved in North Cross, uh, let me suggest a few different ways. You can look at the, the during the week uh, activities that we have in our bulletin. Uh, you're welcome to come to any of those at any time. And... Also, there are life groups. We'd really encourage you to plug into community that way uh, and maybe try out one. And if you don't, if it doesn't fit for you, that's okay. We expect that that's not going to happen every time, first time, and feel free to, to try out another. Uh, but as we kind of transition to the passage at hand, I just want to remind you that for the next several Sundays, in the past few Sundays, we as a church have been going through and will continue to lean into the season of Lent. And we're looking, but we're looking, we're doing that by looking at the book of Ruth together. The book of Ruth invites us into kind of Lent's radical honesty by telling an intimate, ordinary story of two widowed women and a nearly forgotten farmer acting out the intricacies in love, of love in the time when the judges ruled. That's just a the biblical way of saying in a R, rated R or TV mature world. <laughs> and that's what we're looking at because that's our world too. In many ways, the demonstrations of pure love that we see, this kind of love in Ruth, the book of Ruth, uh, leads us into heart examination about our love, our abilities and inabilities, the ways that love kind of overflows from us at times, and the ways in which we feel the lack of our love at times as well. But the center of all of this, these personal stories of people like Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, um, often humming behind these very human scenes is the love of God. God who is invisibly working the angles, wholly, stubbornly, uneasily, and extravagantly pouring on the rescue. But before we sort of ask ourselves what our love looks like and what God's love is looking like in our lives, all in the world around us, would you pray for our time together? Uh, would you pray with me for our time in God's words to us? This morning. Let's pray. Father, um, we confess that there's a lot of different things that are going or humming in our hearts and minds. Uh, we think about uh, the joy and excitement that some of us are feeling uh, in spring and the turn of weather, and we just also think about in the baptism, and we think about also maybe just some of the sorrow that we're carrying, um, some of us more than others, and I just pray that you'd be with all the different emotional states that we have in this room? Would you beat us uniquely where we are? Would you love all of us as if we were the only one? Uh, which is what you promise. And we just pray that your love would become more real, that you, Jesus, would become more real to us as who you are. A person who is absolute, an absolute person who moves and dwells and has your being in this world in the heavens, and I pray that you would change us by hearing from you. Open our ears, enliven our hearts 
change us by what you want to teach us this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. So on September 12th, 2008, something kind of momentous happened. It began in England in 1597, wove its way through New England in 1850, and from Nashville, Tennessee, it stormed the hearts, the minds, and the wallets of at least 18 million people. I'm talking, of course, of Taylor Swift's song, Love Song. Okay, in case you're not familiar with this classic, Taylor Swift, can I call her that? Can I call her Taylor? Do I call her T-Swift? What do I, what do I call her? She writes a song about a boy uh, her friends and her family don't like very much and casts him as Romeo um, and casts herself as Juliet and even at times identifies with Hester Prynne from the Scarlet Letter. I won't sing them, but I'm going to tell you some of the lines from the song, maybe to refresh you, we can admit that, or to inform you. Because you were Romeo, I was a Scarlet Letter, and my daddy said stay away from Juliet but you were everything to me, and I was begging you, please don't go. And I said, Romeo, take me somewhere we can be alone. I'll be waiting. All that's left to do is run. You'll be the prince, and I'll be the princess. It's a love story, baby. Just say yes. And because I can't resist, let's keep going. My faith in you was fading when I met you on the outskirts of town, and I said, Romeo, save me. I've been feeling so alone. I keep waiting for you, but you never come. Is this in my head? I don't know what to think. He knelt to the ground, pulled out a ring, and said, Marry me, Juliet. You'll never have to be alone. I love you, and that's all I really know. I talked to your dad. Go pick out a white dress. It's a love story, baby. Just say yes. I don't know if you noticed this in the catchiness of that chorus, but um, it's worth noting that Taylor Swift rewrote the ending to Romeo and Juliet. I don't know if you know the original, but that's not how it ended. Star-crossed lovers no longer each tragically commit suicide. Instead, Romeo gets Juliet's dad's blessing, gets a ring by spring, and it ends with a white dress wedding. In an interview once, Taylor Swift calls this happy ending what the best love story ever told deserved. The ending she calls she and many others have hoped for for so long. Before all the Enneagram 4s, and the Brit-lit English majors, and the grumpy traditionalists in the room, harumph once again, uh, all about pop music, air quotes. Taylor Swift is right in a lot of ways, isn't she? We do at a deep-seated heart level and cultural level, we hope for a love story that ends with a yes. For a love that doesn't care what anyone thinks and what anyone says. This longing for a perfect love with a happy and eternal ending This desire has a lot of goodness to it. And I would argue it's been set in our hearts by God, and it's only completely satisfied by Jesus. But this love story narrative can also blind us to what's truly going on in Ruth chapter 2. And perhaps more importantly, the romance of the love storyline and the over and above wedding industry that we all live in can blind us to the identity-changing power of other kinds of love besides romantic love. You see, the temptation is to read the story of Ruth, uh, the story of Boaz and Ruth, and and this love story through that lens only. You know, after all, two very different, unlikely people fall in love, and then they get married, and they have a child, who, by the way, is King David's grandfather and Jesus' ancestor. 
Sorry for that spoiler if you have not read the end of the book of Ruth. We will get there. But now that we all know how the story plays out, it's really tempting to see all of that and see Boaz's loving generosity to Ruth in the passage that Jody just read. And we can think of it as just like the first steps in a romantic courtship. You know, like an ancient, she's kind of cute, let's merge Google calendars and put spring-themed Instagram pictures online. Um, and let's basically do that sort of dating timeline together. We can read it that way, but that's not the intention. Instead, Ruth chapter 2, verses 4 through 23, are saying this. Boaz's love for Ruth is over and above romance. Boaz's love for Ruth is over and above romance. It's a template for us to fill in with our lives, and it's a scene of Jesus' love for us to adore. So it's a template and a scene of Jesus' love for us to endure. And really our passage is inviting us into exercising and enjoying this over and above love by highlighting three different ways it's extremely extravagant. You can find this on the outline, by the way, if you have your e-bullets on your phone and maybe project it behind me, there we go. First, primarily in verses four through eight, 10, 13 through 14 and 19, Boaz shows us a love that is present. It's a love that is over and above a minimum pity. Second, primarily in verses 7 through 17, Boaz shows us a love that gives away good things. It's a love that's over and above the minimum letter of the law. And third and finally, in verses 18 through 23, Boaz shows us a love that takes on ownership. It's a love that's over and above a minimum of advice. And so you'll notice, by the way, saying primarily, I'm not going to go exactly in sequential order in these different verses. It's more thematic as we approach the story, but nonetheless, it'll go roughly in order. And so we're going to begin at the very beginning in verse 4, in a love that is present. So if you'd look there with me, let's, let's begin there. And as you kind of scan down the passage and think about what you heard, uh, at a SparkNote summary level, can we do that? <laughs> As Sparknotes summary level, today's episode of Ruth's story can seem a little bit, well, blah, okay? Right? Let's just be honest for a second. It can seem that way. Ruth looks for grain. She gets lots of grain. Hip, hip, and all God's people said, hooray. (laughs) But when we look at this, when we look closely at Boaz's love and what God is up to through Boaz, we begin to see something powerful is actually going on beneath the surface and all around. We begin to see that. Look, for instance, at the way that the initial verses of our passage emphasize the importance of presence. Where people are present and how people are present. Uh, Look, with a sharp rock in her hand, a bundle of bent barley stalks in her lap, and on her hands and knees, From early morning until now, there's Ruth. But just then, in the ragged gleanings, God shows up in the form of Boaz. And behold, Boaz came from the town of Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Verse 4. Boaz shows up. It's amazing. He shows up where Ruth spends her days, in the ancient Israelite equivalent of the unemployment line at the edges of the field, the fringes of public and acceptable society. 
And there Boaz comes, spreading the Lord's presence and blessing with his lips. In verse 8, even calling Ruth my daughter. An, ad, an address that identifies Ruth with God's people and not as a Moabite. And so Boaz, loving in his loving actions and his loving words, is kind of generously, blessedly extending his presence in Ruth's life. Look with me. Boaz commands Ruth's protection from any physical or sexual assault. He gives her a choice of harvesting position. She gets to glean among the still standing stalks instead of searching through what's been picked over already. And Boaz even allows her to drink from the same vessel as his Israelite workers. In verse 10, Ruth realizes she's being treated like an Israelite, not a Moabite. That Boaz's foreman pointed out to her two separate times in one sentence that she was a foreigner. And so what Ruth says in verse 10 tells us that she feels felt. She feels like a fully human person. She feels favored. She feels seen. She's no longer invisible, despised, but she's delighted in. And finally, by verse 14, Boaz has elevated Ruth's status well above her self-proclaimed foreigner status and even above a Hebrew maidservant status. Boaz invites Ruth to eat with him. Scholar Carolyn James describes the awesome power of this scene behind this gesture. What does it mean to eat with someone in the ancient world? A gleaner seated beside paid workers. A Moabitess dining with Israelites. A man serving a woman. The poor included among the rich. An outsider embraced by the inner circle. Ruth was on the losing end of all three categories for an Israelite. Ethnicity, social status, and gender. But Mo Boaz refuses to maintain those boundaries. Now God's people through Boaz are embracing her. You see, Boaz's words and actions go beyond pity. He's not just feeling pity for a hungry woman. They push past ethnic differences and social disparities and gender norms. Boaz is practicing something over and above condescending pity or mere romance. He's practicing empathy. An empathy that is healing Ruth, that is challenging the very way that Ruth sees herself. To use the language of Brene Brown, Boaz is feeling with Ruth. He's telling and showing her in so many words, I am with you, Ruth. I get it. And Boaz is showing Ruth by his actions that he, a wealthy Israelite, land-owning male, Boaz can understand something of what it's like to be Ruth. And he does this when he honestly remembers his own personal history. Because after all, if you read the genealogy in the very beginning of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 5, a foreign woman and a prostitute named Rahab was Boaz's mother. And his book, Let the Great World Spin, Colin McCann shocked me. He did it by putting his figure, his Jesus character, in a modern place of gleaning. He puts his Jesus character in the filth and poverty of a 1970s Bronx public housing complex. And Jesus was there in the grime of the everyday. Jesus was on welfare. And Jesus is, out, is this out-of-orders, holy Catholic priest, in McCann's telling, who spends his days with his mo the most marginalized, 
addicted and socially outcast prostitutes and truckers under highway overpasses. He buys them and brings them warm cups of coffee. He opens up his apartment so they can use the bathroom. He listens to their young dreams in, in, in detail. And then he gets beat up by their pimps for his troubles. The more I thought about Jesus there in that space, in that way, the more it made sense to me because Jesus is descended from Boaz who had a foreign prostitute mother and will marry a foreign gleaner wife. Not to mention that Jesus grew up poor and he hung out with people that most folks pretend not to see. This image of Jesus under the overpass, handing out free cups of coffee or at the edges of the field with a word of blessing and a good meal at hand, this Jesus challenges you and me, doesn't it? Think about it. Do I notice every kind of person that I deal with on a daily basis? When do I notice the people whose eyes I avoid? Do I try to understand what it feels like to be him and her in that moment? Do I think about what they might need that I can provide? Will I ask about their personal story? Will I choose to dig into my own difficult-to-remember memories and find emotional common ground? Or when I walk into a social setting, will I ask not, who do I know here? And instead start to ask, who can I love here? What do, you, what do I say or do differently when I ask, who's left out versus who's easy for me to talk to? The love that moved Boaz beyond pity and to give, aw give away his presence also led Boaz to give away his good things. It moved him beyond the power of the letter of the law. And we see this in our second point, verses 7 through 17. Boaz goes over and above the letter of the law, doesn't he? He does, it, he does it for gleaning in Israel, if you think about that law for a second. According to the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Ruth as a gleaner was only entitled to cut down and pick up passed over grain at the edges of the field. But look at how Boaz pushes through that. In verse 9, Boaz tells Ruth to keep an eye out for the stalks that the women workers fail to bundle up. This includes wandering into and working in the middle of the field, but beyond the edges. Further in verse 15, Boaz tells his laborers to let Ruth glean even among the sheaves. That is, Ruth gets to harvest still standing grain all over the field, just like one of Boaz's workers. And finally, in verse 16, Boaz instructs his women workers to also pull out some barley stalks from the bundles for her, Ruth, and leave it for her to glean or to pick up. So this is really important. Boaz is not just giving Ruth the opportunity to pick up after the edges of the field. He's not just saying you can pick up the leftover stalks in the middle of the field. He's not even saying you get to harvest the middle of the field. Ruth, uh, Boaz is giving Ruth all of these things and prime stalks of barley that she didn't even have to collect herself. According to verse 17, after threshing the grain, Ruth gets an ephah 30 pounds of barley grain in one day. That's after the threshing. For scale, that's 15 times the average worker's daily wage. 
That's roughly one month of grain ration in a day. This is not just an amazingly good haul for Ruth and for Naomi, right? It's also extremely self-sacrificial for Boaz. That grain comes from the same pile that Boaz needs to feed himself, to pay his workers, and to plant for next year's barley crop. In the words of Paul Miller and Carolyn James, Boaz wants to overwhelm Ruth with love. He's not calculating a manageable percentage of his income. He's pulling out bills from his savings in the fistful. Boaz is showing us how to love our neighbor as ourselves, as we would want to be loved. Boaz is not simply permitting Ruth, he's promoting Ruth. Perhaps we can see how much this, faith, this takes faith in God, right? That we have to trust that the Lord will reward or at least not penalize us for kindness, just like Boaz. But giving away good things also takes understanding grace. It takes an awareness of our problems and a readiness to own our need as well as to own God's dumbfounding generosity. Let me tell you a story. One day, I was in the parking lot off of Brawley School Road in Mooresville. There I was, walking to my car, when a beat-up blue sedan kind of rolled to a stop right next to me. And an older man leaned over his silent wife, and as she sat staring forward, looking through the windshield, refusing eye contact, he asked over her, he asked me for money. And he told me they were from small, some small town I'd never heard of, and they needed money to get back to this town. Otherwise, they have to sleep in the car, or they have to go somewhere else, or who knows where. And ordinarily, I'm armed for these kind of encounters, like many of us, aren't, aren't you? Aren't we? I often don't carry around cash on purpose. I grew up in the city on the edges of, the, of a hard, rough part of town for most of my life. I have friends who've worked with the homeless for years, and they've told me not to give anyone money, but to give them food or gas, or diapers that they need and ask for. That's all to say, perhaps I had a way too tough, no sorry man, ready to roll off my lips. But this time, I did actually have some cash. And there was this sort of hard to percentage out combination of professional guilt and genuine concern. And these all kind of led me to give this man with his silent wife the last $20 I had on my person. And for a split second, I felt really good about this decision. Um, the older man at the wheel said something like, God bless you, or may you be blessed, and I felt pretty good. And then I watched him floor the gas pedal, and his beat-up blue sedan kind of screeched and swerved right past the gas station that was at the end of the strip mall and off into who knows where. And it was at that moment that I second-guessed my decision. I drove home minutes later, just bathing, churning in guilt. Foolishness, that was so silly. How could I have been so stupid or soft? And then suddenly, that spin cycle of shame and guilt ceased. And I realized that God does that all the time with me. All the time. He gives me all sorts of gifts all of the time. And by my reading of the Bible, it seems like he has ideas about how I should use those gifts. <laughs> Money, 
time, strength, love, breath. And there are times when I tell God things that he wants to hear so I can get what I want, how I want it, and then I screech and swerve out of there, right? Away from all things religious or just away from Jesus, anyone but me, leave me alone. But from what the Bible tells me, God doesn't handle giving away good things to people like us with guilt or shame. God isn't saying, I can't believe I was so stupid or soft with that guy. He gives his children good gifts because he wants to, because he likes us. All the good things that we have are not filled with conditions on the giving. There are so many things that you do not have to rent to own in this life. They're gifts for the good and the bad, for the unjust and the just alike. Perhaps this is why Boaz didn't give Ruth and Naomi a lecture when he gave them 30 pounds of grain in a day. Perhaps this is what the point of the gift was. It was for them to use freely. It was respecting their dignity as persons over and above counting out what's fair. And that's not to say something about how to handle poverty. That's just to say something about grace. And so as we move to this idea, and really this idea of a gift over and above deserving is at the heart of verses 18 through 23. And it's our third and final point, a love that takes on ownership beyond advice. In these verses, the connection between Boaz's generosity and Naomi's family, this connection is a connection that we already know as readers, don't we? We've, heard, we've read ahead. We know exactly why Boaz is doing this, at least partly. But that finally becomes apparent to Naomi and then to Ruth. The significance of the relationship is highlighted by Naomi in verse 20. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours one of your redeemers. That word translated kindness is so hard to translate in the Hebrew. It's a word called chesed, chesed, but it describes the very essence of God. And so let me try to get at it. Naomi sees in Boaz's love, God's chesed, God's deep gladness, his absolute loyalty, his obligation to keep his promises, whatever it may cost him personally. And I will take on your consequences for you, deep commitment to voluntarily do what no one has the right to expect or ask of the maker and sustainer of the heavens and the earth. God cares and has freely made it his business to look out for you and for me and God's business is extraordinary. It's unexpected, it's exceptional, it's radical, and it's oh so costly to him because it's oh so free for us. And in case that string of adjectives didn't work for you, you haven't gotten God's point yet, look at Ruth, Ruth 2 verse 20. It also leaves us an Old Testament historical person who embodies this concept of chesed, the kinsman redeemer, the goel in the Hebrew. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. 
and therefore he's expected to take on and help his tribe to recover from human losses, like murder or buying family out of debt-induced slavery, from judicial losses like lawsuits, economic losses like buying back sold-off property, marital losses like marrying childless widows to preserve family line and family name. That's what he's called to do. Listen to the way that Paul Miller describes a goel, a kinsman redeemer. He risks, this person risks helping from the inside. Redeemers own the problem. They own the weight of the other person's life and it falls on them. That is the opposite of advice, isn't it? Advice is helping, is a safe sort of helping someone from the outside, a love from a distance. The kinsman redeemer is this sort of historically unique thing to Israel, and he's the very essence of Jesus' love. And I can't say it better than Paul Miller, so I'm just going to quote him again. Here's what it is. Roughly 2,000 years ago, when Jesus died on the cross, he was the goel for the world. God didn't simply send us a book of instructions. He sent his son. He didn't give us advice. He gave us his own flesh. He didn't just, go, just show us how to do it. He did it himself all the way to his death. Jesus is the perfect Goel. That is, means, this is the true, true story, and that means that Jesus became a man like us permanently. Jesus continues to f- be fully human, and he died a death for me. That is, even in heaven, he still has his human flesh with open wounds that he points to on our behalf. Jesus didn't just follow, he did this all just to follow through for us. So amazing. He owns all of my problems with me. He owns all of my many losses for me to change the very way that I and you see ourselves so that we can count ourselves in and not count ourselves out so much. You see, God does not excuse himself from the suffering and the pain that you are undergoing right now. In this world, no, God takes on ownership from the inside for this broken world, in his broken body. He gets it. He's healing it. He's healing us. No offense to Miss Taylor Swift, but I think that's the best love story ever told. And the 2.38 billion people worldwide who call themselves Christians, their hearts, their minds, and their wallets would agree. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this, this reminder. <laughs> uh, we live in a world that is so confusing and it hurts, but it's also filled with so much good that you've put there, that you're working. And I pray that you would startle us with it today. Would you make it a little bit unsettling all throughout today and this week? That you're the kind of God that gives this generously. That things that look ordinary are extraordinary. That you have surprises that we can't even ask or imagine. Lord, we need your spirit. We need to believe by your grace that you're this gracious. And we ask for it, like little children. In your name, Jesus. Amen.